All right. Okay, here we go. All right. So uh, this panel is ethics in the legislature, maybe an oxymoron. Um, I think the, all the panelists know that I love this topic because it tends to crash and burn. Um, but let me introduce my panelists first. Um, and with that, state, state representative sitting right next to me here, State Representative Giovanni Capriglione, Republican of South Lake, has represented District 98 and the Texas House since 2012. He served on the House Appropriations, Local and Consent Calendars and Investments and Financial Services Committees and as Chairman of the Subcommittee on Bond Indebtedness. Capriglione is also President of Texas Adventure Capital LLC, which provides services to small businesses. He has the rare distinction along with another one of our panelists of actually getting an ethics bill through the legislature, House Bill 1295, uh, 1295, which will greatly enhance our knowledge of potential conflicts of interest in government contracting. We'll be talking about that a little later. Representative Sarah Davis, Republican of West University Place, was first elected in 2010 to represent District 134 in the Texas House. She serves on the Public Health, Calendars, and Appropriations Committees and as Secretary of the Women's Health Caucus. Davis is an attorney. She's a partner with Lewis Briz... Brisboy. Brisboy. Bisgard. Bisgard and Smith. Okay. And you got my name right, but not that. Yeah, I know. And like Geo, she got some ethics reforms passed into law this year, HB 21, which will shed more light on relationships between vendors and local government officials. State Representative Kirk Watson, uh, chairman of the Texas Senate, was chairman of the Texas Senate Democratic Caucus. Democrat of Austin has represented Senate District 14 since 2007. He serves on the Senate Finance, Business and Commerce, Nominations, and Higher Education Committees. He is a partner with the law firm Hush Blackwell. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah. And previously served as mayor of Austin on, and on the original board of the Livestrong Foundation. Watson tried something crazy this last session. He wanted lobbyists to report the names of politicians that are getting wined and dined by the lobbyists. Please cue the laugh track. <laughs> You'll be shocked to learn that his bill died a lonely but relatively pain-free death in the back halls of the Texas Capitol. I, I'm actually still hurting, but that's... <laughs> okay. So let me open with this. Voters seem to, to want their politicians to have high ethical standards. They, they don't like it when elected leaders are getting secretly wined and dined. They don't like it when they get to collect lucrative pensions even after they broke the law. They don't like it when they profit off of their public service. So why is ethics reform, why is more transparency so hard to achieve? Why don't we start with you, Senator Watson? Okay, I'd be happy to. Thank you all for being here, and I appreciate the, the opportunity to be on this panel with these two. Um, I, I think I'm going to use this session as, as the way I answer that question, and why I think this session didn't produce because it didn't, in my view, it didn't produce. Even when you had a governor that had declared it an emergency item and a lot of talk among the members of the legislature that we would be able to pass something and some really good bills that would create debate filed on it. And I think it, 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 I have two thoughts in that regard, at least from the Senate perspective, one's overall. The first one is that I don't feel like during this session on something that gov ends up being a governance of the members of the legislature and those that come in contact day to day with members of the legislature. So governance of how the place operates. I didn't feel like that there was a clear understanding or feeling or leadership or direction, whatever is the right word, about where it ought to go. And so it ended up being a free-for-all. It was an emergency item, but with no clear direction on what does ethics even mean? And we're going to have ethics reform. Well, what, does, how does that, what is that supposed to look like? And so it left everybody to their own devices. And we can talk a little bit about specifics of how that, that played out. But I think a lack of an understanding or feeling about where it ought to go probably doomed it from the start. The second thing I would say is that in the Senate, this Senate um, session had a different feel than in previous, where pretty much bills that, that made it, every, everything that you wanted, that some wanted, some that were in control wanted, they were going to make it to the floor. And that also meant that amendments could end up 
on, on things if, if people wanted them. That's real key to some of her, her good work. Um, but as a result of that, because there wasn't as much this time in the Senate actually vetting legislation, thinking through it, certainly allowing for debate and discussion in committee or on the floor, when you couple that with no clear direction, uh, you don't end up with anything. And, and I worry that we're going to need to have a scandal before you're going to get that clear direction. Representative Davis, uh, you, I see you shaking your yeah, head over I, there. Yeah, nodding I, your head. I agree with pretty much everything that the senator just said. I think there was, there was no, I don't know what the, the, the prompting of needing, quote, widespread ethics reform was. There was no scandal. There was no Sharpstown. And now, granted, the, the governor did make it an emergency item. But again, it, I, did, I agree. We were sort of all just working on it um, individually. The, my involvement with, with ethics reform started during the interim, working with the Texas Ethics Commission um, as a result of Governor Perry vetoing the Sunset Bill. I think that was 219. So, I mean, I had been working on these issues independent of, um, I guess, the, the governor's call for ethics reform. But I didn't get the sense that there was um, some type of public demand um, or outrage over something that prompted any type of ethics reform. And, well, and I think, personally, we have a very pretty transparent government. And I think that the legislature is, is pretty transparent. The issues that you referenced in the question, uh, I think Texas handles fairly well. Well, let me point out that we did have a pretty major contracting scandal at HHSC, um, and of course now the Attorney General has been indicted, um, and Rick Perry had also been indicted. Um, so there, there were some, there, there were some ethical ethics controversies. The, the, but. the contracting, absolutely, but that, I mean, the, the question was really focusing on behavior of legislators and the and the body. So. Let, let's get you on this, Gio. Was the, was the governor sort of MIA on this? or? Well, I mean, so this is my second session. And if I compare what happened ethics-wise this session versus the previous, it's a lot better, right? We had set our goals, I think, really high, maybe too broad, just saying ethics. It's hard to legislate ethics, really. It's hard to go and tell someone you have to be more, have certain morals or certain principles. But, what, but the contract scandal, I think, did provide some focus on what we should be doing, which is why we did see some bills doing that. But I do want to go with the Senator Watson said, which was you can't really, um, it just hasn't worked very well, whether it's a Sunset Commission bill or any of these really big omnibus bills. It, what we do, we call in the legislature a Christmas tree uh, bill, right? It's an opportunity for everybody to put something in. And when everybody puts something in, there's always something that someone doesn't like in it. And, and, I, and I want to make sure that I'm clear. The governor set parameters for an emergency item. <coughs> But that doesn't mean that he, he ought to be criticized just because he said, Here's, let's, let's, do, let's have some ethics. I think it's okay for him to turn to the members of the legislature and say, you guys know what you need to do. Now let's get it done. And that's particularly true when the governor was in his first session coming out of being a judge and attorney general and having not had a whole, a whole lot of legislative work. I think he ought to look at the adults in the room and say, you guys know what needs to be fixed. Now go fix it without turning it into a charade. Let's lean into this a little bit on, on Governor Abbott because he said in his State of the State address that we should, quote, dedicate this session to ethics. I remember that because I thought it was shocking when he said that. I thought, wow, this is going to be interesting because ethics bills often have a hard time. Well, we found out later um, that in some emails that we uncovered that he was, was actually thinking very deeply about it. Let me just read what he said in his email. Let me foreshadow a potential outcome. We all know legislators will balk at these reforms as is suggested in this story, the story he was re uh, referring to. They will prevent it from being brought up or overload it so much that it cannot become legislation. Thus, it seems like the best possible avenue to get this done is in special session. If I call special sessions on single-based ethics issues, they will be hard-pressed to vote against them and they can't overload them with extraneous material. They won't like it, but it will be a bed they made themselves. Now that, that strikes me as somebody who's very savvy 
about this process. Why well, he, didn't he predicted the outcome? Didn't he, he did predict yeah. the outcome. Of course, we don't have a special session on ethics now. But but Geo, what about that? I mean, did, did he was you know, did you see Abbott working this really hard or not? They, they again, it was one of their top items, and there was specific items like conflict of interest, which he had specifically called out for, and, and we worked on. But looking at how bills normally go through the process. I mean, that you can say that really just about anything. Anything big and important is always going to have detractors. It's always going to have, especially towards the end of session when people's bills have died and they're trying to find somewhere, anywhere to go and put it on. But to the point of using single shot bills, I think that's where, I think that's how to get this done, right? You do a very tightly controlled, germane bill, a germane caption with a specific focus. And I think that's the way to get, get this done. Sarah, did you did you uh, interact a lot with the governor's staff on on your bills? And uh, I did towards the end of session, um, more so than the beginning of session. But you know, I think that there was really a couple different ethics tracks of legislation going on at the same time. Donna Howard had some bills. You know, Geo had bills. I had a, a you know a handful of bills, and we and then we had sort of the governor's um, legislative. Uh, I guess that was SB 19. And so these were all moving at the same time. And definitely towards the end of the session, I was in communication with the governor's office yep. daily. I should say uh, the author of Senate Bill 19, Van Taylor, Senator Van Taylor, could not make it to the panel today. He had a death in the family. So we're sorry he can't be here, but I just want to point that out. Um, Senator Watson, did you, you know, see any, not, any of not, that? Not so much on my bills. Uh, I, had, I had some very specific rifle shot bills that uh, we passed out of the Senate uh, with big margins in multiple ways. But when, when it got toward the end of the session with Senate Bill 19, which was the Senate bill that was kind of the omnibus bill, that my single shot bills had also made it to, to, uh, on the, as amendments. Uh, by that time, the fight between the House and the Senate on the omnibus bills was such that I didn't really anticipate seeing anything because it was such such a, a wall between the two chambers, and that that I didn't I, I thought it was dead. The, frankly, I thought SB 19 was probably dead the minute it passed out of the Senate. Well, let's talk about uh, a couple of your bills that did did. Uh, come up and got did get a hearing. Well, they the, finally got They finally got a hearing after we wrote about it, basically. Yeah. But, um, that that's exactly right. They would not have gotten a hearing. Well, that was a classic example. They would not have gotten a hearing absent the media paying attention to it and creating uh, a problem that they hadn't gotten a hearing. So let's talk about those bills. Um, these were bills that were basically designed. You had two of them. One. Uh, was basic. It was all about the whining and dining, and um, one of them basically lowered the threshold on what you would have to That's report, right. and the other one d dealt with split reporting. But explain why it is that we as voters can't find out the names of the politicians that are being whined and dined. Wasn't that the point of the reforms in the 90s that were passed during the Ann, Mi Ann Richards administration? I can't answer your question because you asked me to explain why. Uh, I, I don't know why. I don't understand why. Um, the, the, the law of disclosure on gifts and whining and dining is meant to be protective of the lobby, the registered lobbyist, and the members because it prevents them from being charged with bribery if it's appropriately reported. And we have at least winked at, with the legislation you're talking about, we wink at the concept that disclosure is the right thing. And by the way, you probably won't be able to find anybody, even with a few beers in them, that won't say, yeah, disclosure is the right way to go. Well, if that's your presumption, then why don't we make disclosure meaningful? And what my two bills did, and there was actually a third that I'll mention, but what my two bills did is one said, if it's above $50, if it's above $50, you have to do a detailed report, which means you have to also tell who, who you did it. And the other one says that if it's above $50, you can't split it among registered lobbyists with the goal being that you get it below the threshold so you don't have to report it. Pretty simple. I passed those as standalone bills, both of them as standalone bills. I passed them both as an amendment to Senate Bill 19, as I said during the time. 
I passed them with belts and suspenders. And my pants still ended up at my ankles by the end of the session. Um, but the third bill, the third bill was one that would have required that the required by statute that the Ethics Commission post those things online. The Ethics Commission does that as a matter of practice. All this would have done was the law would have said you, you need to do what you're already doing. And I never even got a hearing on that one. So I don't, I don't know the answer. In fact, we were in the green room talking, and uh, the representative asked me a question about, why'd you do this? And the demand I got for it, the people that came to me and asked me to do it, were members of the lobby. They were members of the lobby wanting that protection because they're, they, they are, they're worried about where all this is headed. And but yet we weren't able to we weren't able to get it passed. So let me let me explain because some people may not know this, but a very tiny tiny percentage of the whining and dining actually makes it into the reports. Even though that was the intent of the law, it basically uh, right now it's set at about I don't know one hundred and fifty dollars. It's it's a, it's sixty percent of the. It, it's it's based upon our per diem. So if right. our per diem goes up then that threshold right. goes up. So it's, 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 it's over $100. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But, but because you can have this split reporting, basically what happens, if, if, if a, lobbyist, if a lo lobby firm has 10, 10 lobbyists, they, all 10 of them could go to the bar or the restaurant and uh, charge Divide it up, and then they don't have to report it. Divide it up, and then even if the bill is $1,000, it, it never gets... The spending gets reported. It says lobbyists so-and-so has spent this amount of money, but it doesn't say who they've spent the money and, on. And, and what, so we and, don't have real disclosure. And what many registered lobbyists say to me is that one of the things that happens is they'll invite somebody to a, a football game or something, and the member will say, you can't report this. Don't put this down on the report. So they have to figure out a way to divide it up. And they don't like being put in, in that posture. So just quickly, uh, Gio and, and, and Sarah, um, do, would you have a problem? I mean, do any of y'all have a problem with, like, if a lobbyist uh, takes you out to dinner, that it would be reported? No, and I, I think in the green room we were talking about the fact that we thought it, it was, right? And so right. We, we just assumed that it is, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, I was saying how, <clears throat> you know, when, you, when you're your first session, you've never worked in the Capitol, you really have a lot to learn. And I didn't even realize that if... I had gone out to dinner with the lobbyists that that wasn't being reported. I just assumed that it was. Um, you know, you learn <coughs> later that that's not right. But I have absolutely no problem with the disclosure at all. I don't think, but you know, I think we actually had an amendment on the House floor to SB 19. And the amendment, did that, I think that yep. amendment failed. I don't know if it failed or not. But well, the, the, on the, the, the uh, SB 19, the part, the whining and dining stuff was stripped out. Stripped out. Outside, it, it, it went away. Outside, right. Yeah. But let, let's talk but about. But there were still attempts to put it back. Right. Let's talk about dark money. Um, and, and let me say, first of all, what dark money is. Basically, it's money that uh, uh, raised by a politically active nonprofits, 501c4 organizations. So, these are called social welfare organizations, and they're supposed to be doing something that's good for the social welfare. That's how they get their tax-exempt status. But they also can have a component that's politically, it, that, that contributes uh, to politics or gets involved in politics as long as it's not over 50% of their activities. Um, and they've become very big nationally. Um, and also in the state, um, and uh, I think our entire panel knows that the uh, Texas Senate and the governor opposed efforts to require the disclosure of this dark money. Um, and I, I wonder, though, if the politics are changing on this. So you had sort of a House and Senate standoff, but, but Gio, would you have trouble going to your voters in your district and saying you're for keeping dark money dark? Wouldn't that be kind of a bad position to take? It would have been impossible for me to go back to my district and look at my constituents in the eye and tell them I voted against disclosure. And when, <clears throat> when we look at, you know, for instance, and from my perspective as a conservative, I go and I see these groups, George Soros groups, Mossin groups, whatever, they're funding anti-environmental campaigns, they're funding pro-choice campaigns, I want to know on that side. Yes, it should be fair, so all groups should be disclosed. But I think it, 
for me, and the reason I supported it in the House was, I think if you tell any, ask any rational person and say, hey, should big money donors be disclosed? Should you know who's putting up those mailers and putting up those signs and being involved in this? I mean, I've seen polls on it, but I don't have to. I could just ask anybody and people say, yeah, I want to know who's putting in, putting in that money. Sarah, what, what about in, in your district? What, you know, what kind of, how would that issue play out in your district? Oh, I think that if I were to be opposed to disclosure of any kind, like Gio said, that would not go over well. The House has, I think, an incredibly strong track record of wanting uh, to require these dark money groups uh, to disclose who their donors are. Uh, I can say that I'm very supportive of how uh, aggressive, I think, on some level that the Texas Ethics Commission has become and, and with their rulemaking authority, and now we have a commissioner uh, in the audience now. And I, I, you know, we're, I, I can say I'm fully supportive of the, of the, uh, the TEC's efforts. You know, post-Citizens United, with no, no limits, of course, on campaign contribution, disclosure is all we really have to know. I mean, to, who is funding what? And if you explain to somebody, you know, there's a group and they're going to spend millions of dollars against a candidate or for an issue, and you will never know who donated one dollar to pay um, for that. No one's, no one is going to be for that. Well, uh, though, but dark money did die in the Senate. Uh, we don't have Van Taylor here to explain his position on that. He was in favor of, of keeping the dark money rules the way they are. But um, Senator Watson, what, what was the debate about? Why, there, why? there was not a debate. And, and, and let me be very clear. I thought Senator Taylor worked very hard during this session to pass uh, meaningful ethics reform. There were some difficulties. There were some issues that came up, and we could talk about it in more detail. But one of the areas where I disagreed with him was on this issue. And he, it, became, it became a reason that the House version of the bill was never going to, the House version of the ethics bill was never going to go anywhere because it had it in it. It was a poison pill, if you will, and it shouldn't have been. Because again, and I, and I actually think that one of the things that we're, we've lost a little bit in the Senate is that we get to, we talk to talk about these kinds of issues. We should have had that debate, even in committee or uh, make it to the floor. Let's have the debate and let's hear somebody on the floor talk about why it is they don't favor disclosure under those circumstances. Uh, so that was a real failing. And I don't think that the House added dark money to SB 19 to, to kill it, to kill no, it no. at all. That's the House position. We think that if you are going to have ethics reform, you have to include Money and, and I was not suggesting that. I was just suggesting that once that was in okay. there, the, the Senate shut down, and I think it shouldn't have. Well, that was an allegation, by the way, that but from some of the people that supported the Senate version of the bill said that the dark money provision was a poison pill. It was done on purpose just to kill everything, but I'm, I'm, I'm not taking a position. I'm, I'm not saying that. Say, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that because right. I, I, I would have favored that in the bill. I would right. have enjoyed having that discussion on the Senate floor as we tried to pass the bill. And, you know, obviously it's common sense to put this disclosure in there for, these, for the big donors, but the question is why? Well, it's a 501c4, which means it has a nonprofit status, which means that they're getting millions of dollars and not paying taxes on it. If any of you got millions of dollars, you'd have to pay taxes on it, whether it's a gift tax or an income tax. And the reason we, we allow, the federal government allows them to not have to pay this income tax is because they're doing a public good and a public service. And it's the only way, I think, that you can, just like we want disclosure for ourselves, we, we should require it for anybody who's not paying taxes. You know, as I watch Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders both take off in their uh, respective parties, one of the things that is popular it, among their supporters is this issue of disclosing money and big money in politics. Um, and, you know, Trump says he's going to pay his own way and Sanders won't have anything to do with the super PACs and all of that. I'm wondering if the politics of dark money are changing. Um, do, you, do you sense that? Because it was just a shutdown situation in the Senate. I, I frankly don't yet. And part of the reason I don't think it's changing is because the November elections aren't competitive. <coughs> 
when the elections are primarily among the party faithful in primaries, in, in either the Democratic side or the Republican side, you have less ability for disclosure to become a big issue in the campaign than I think you would if you had uh, a general election where it, it played out. So what that means is it, not that it won't play out, it will just take longer because it's, it's a, a more narrow focused electorate when you're talking about a Republican primary in a House district or a Senate district or a Democratic primary in those districts and you're not getting the big discussion. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the elephant in the room here, which is Michael Quinn Sullivan and his group, Empower Texans. Um, I'm not sure which one of the groups is a C4, but he's got a C4, and he's been one of the, and his group has been one of the uh, groups that have uh, opposed efforts to uh, disclose dark money. Is, it, is, it, is this all about, you know, MQS? Well, I, I think, you know, going back to why this needs to be done, I, I don't think you say, hey, okay, because of this one person, this grievance, or because of this one group, there's no one I've ever talked to, okay, outside of Austin groups that have any issue at all with disclosing, especially at the top of all amounts. It's something that I can campaign on. It's something that I, when I first came to the legislature, I said, yeah, as much disclosure as possible, because this, the penalties... We can talk about whether someone should get penalized for spelling Main Street wrong on their ethics form, or someone should, you know, get for being a day late. But really what the public needs to know is who's paying for this mailer. I have mailers coming into my district all the time, right? Some of them like me, some of them don't. But I think everybody should have the ability to find out who's funding that. Sarah, is it all about mucus? You know, I don't think that it is. I mean, I think in, this, in, in Texas, that's obviously um, an organization that sort of political insiders are familiar with um, because that's a uh, Michael Quinn Sullivan and Power Texas and Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. I'm not sure either which one right, is. Um, they just um, are, are very public with their fight against disclosure um, and they seem to have an unlimited amount of money to hire lawyers and, um, and fight with the Texas Ethics Commission and try and, and hide their donors. And so I think that's an example, but I don't think that's the only one, but I think because there's so much wealth from people we don't know, um, that they're really the most, that's the most public organization or, or, or front person, but um, I think it is more than just Michael Quinn Sullivan and, and, and whatever his groups are. You know, in the 2012 campaign, I remember um, when, you know, of course, Rick Perry was found to have been double dipping his uh, pension. He was basically, he was already drawing his pension um, even though he hadn't retired. Um, and then of course, uh, David Dewhurst was running for the US Senate um, and we knew next to nothing about his wealth and how, you know, we'd heard uh, he's got $200 million. Nobody really knew how much he was worth. And then they run for federal office. And all of a sudden, Rick Perry has to disclose on federal forms what he didn't have to disclose on state form. So that's how we found out that he was double dipping. And David Dewhurst, we knew nothing about his wealth until he ran for federal office. So why can't we have like federal office forms? Why can't we do what the federal government's doing at least? Sounds like a bill for the 85th. Just copy. <laughs> so so that, that you're going to file that? Last time I said I would do something, I did. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it make, we should, right? I mean, um, just like a lot of other bills, we don't want to do everything the federal government does. But in the case of disclosure, we should always be trying to find the one that requires the most amount of transparency and accountability. Well, yeah, and it seems to me that Texas is such a large, important state. And, and you know, we have a part-time legislature, so we probably should have more robust disclosure what what about the you know just having better personal financial statements I, I i mean no one's going no one is going to sit up here and say no we we don't want to have to disclose our finances so i mean of course i would be supportive and have been supportive of um more financial disclosure but you know i do think there has to be a balance because we don't want to to um, create a situation where people don't want to run for office um, in the state because they don't want to have, you know, every detail of their finances known to every citizen in the state. So I think that we do need to find a balance. And I'm not familiar, honestly, of what you have to file to run for federal office. So I don't, I don't want to say 
we should or should not do that. Um, but I think we, there definitely could be more disclosure. Uh, but I do think we have to be very careful also because I just don't want to chase people, good qualified people, um, out of office because they don't want to um, sacrifice some, you know, some of their private financial information. What about that, Senator? Do you hear that the discussion? Well, I mean, it's a part-time legislature, and and that that means something, right? Is that you know you get paid six hundred dollars a month, and in fact, about a month ago, I got a letter saying that I owed twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> so uh, right. because my six hundred dollars a month doesn't cover my insurance and that kind of thing. And so one of the things that's true is because it is part-time, what the representative is saying is, is right. People need to make a living. But the answer to how that happens, in my view, is disclosure. Let the public know what's going on within appropriate limits so that you don't create a backlash and only very wealthy or those who are living on just one, one thing that's not going to create any problem can be the ones that run. You want to be able to have a diversity of people that can run, and you've got spouses that are involved and those kinds of things. So, so be careful that you don't uh, ruin the, the ability to have diversity on that, but the great equalizer in all of it is put it out there, disclose it, and then let the public judge. So we're going to be uh, taking questions here in about five to seven minutes. So if you, if you do have a question, you might want to line up at one of the microphones here. Um, I do want to talk about, uh, even though I know a lot of this is sort of negative, you know, a lot of stuff crashed and burned, and there was a, an unfortunate veto at the end of the session that took down some, some good stuff. I think there were two, actually. <laughs> yeah, right, two that Sarah ended up having to ask I for. remember very clearly. Right, but, um, but, I, I, but there actually, a, a lot of people may not know this, but there were a couple of good ethics bills that did get onto the law books, and one of them is House Bill uh, 1295, which I mentioned, um, and I'd like, Gio, just to explain what your bill sure. does and, and how is this is going to enhance what we know about sure. ethics. And, and this is something I had tried one way in my first session here, and, and so we were able to get it done with the help of with everybody. It was unanimous, and Representative Davis and Charlie Guerin, of course, were very helpful on the House side. But what this bill essentially does is it requires that just about every single contract on the state, local, county level that is disclosed who has uh, an interest in that contract. And uh, I want to thank the Texas Ethics Commission for their help on, on working on the rules that so far look pretty good. But what we're going to essentially do is we're going to create an electronic database where you'll be able to go online, type in my name or anybody's name or any business, and you'll be able to see which contracts they have uh, with cities or counties or school districts or whatever. And for me, that's important because it is about sunlight, right? It, and, you know, there's that expression about sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. When, when I went to my, work for my first job, it was a big internet company. And at this internet company we had, it was like 1995, so we just had access to the internet all the time for the first time, and so everyone was goofing off playing on the internet the whole time. And so the CEO at some point said, okay, I'm going to come up with a policy. And so his policy was simply, any employee can go to any website anytime at work for however long they want. The only catch is that every single website that you go to, that link will be accessible to every other employee in the company and how long you were there. It was amazing how quickly people stopped using the internet for fun and for games and that kind of stuff. And so what I'm hopeful is that starting January 1st with these contracts online, that disclosure provides some self-regulation. So I can go, this is going to be a dream for an investigative reporter and probably for opposition researchers, but so I'm going to be able to go online at the Ethics Commission and just like type in your name and see if you have a government contract? Mm -hmm. Yep, uh, it applies to if you have a, a substantial interest, 10% or more interest in a company, if you're an intermediary, if you're a broker, what have you. And so we try to find ways to find some of the ways that people might try and go around it. But again, you know, from a really high level too is, um, let's say there's one county buying widgets and uh, they're paying a certain price. Every other county should be able to quickly be able to see, you know, hey, maybe we should switch which contractors and so on. And, uh, so you didn't have any opposition uh, to your bill in committee. What happened after the bill passed? Sure. So the, so right. So the, the bill sailed, uh, and again, thankfully to everybody here and in the House and in the Senate, it flew through the House, flew through the Senate, 
And with about a week to go, still in the veto period, uh, 23 different organizations sent letters of veto to the Texas uh, to the governor, asking him to veto the bill. And which caught me by surprise, obviously, because they had never come to our staff or anything, and they had just said, hey, we finally got around to reading this bill, and uh, we don't like it. But uh, again, the governor, thankfully, and, and to his credit, said we're not going to stop an ethics bill that discloses conflicts of interest. He signed the bill, and, and it's law. So we have a, uh, another uh, ethics bill that, that got to the legislature, House Bill 23. Um, tell me what House Bill 23 does. Sure, I will. But you know, before, I, okay. I, I want to just say that I served on the, um, on the General Investigating and Ethics Committee this session. And it was very interesting because we had a, a lot of ethics bills and very little opposition. No one came to testify mm -hmm. against Shockingly. any of your bills or any of my <laughs> bills. I mean, I would lay out four and five ethics bills at a time and not one single witness would mm -hmm. show up. We would have maybe um, someone from the TEC there you know, as a resource witness. So it was very interesting to see how that plays out. These bills just fly. Publicly anyway. Yeah, the publicly they fly out and then boom, next thing you know, um, everybody is, uh, is opposed mm -hmm. to them that you find out later and you say, well, why weren't you at the hearing? Or why didn't you call mm -hmm. the office? Why did we, we'd love to have worked with you? Um, I think that yeah. ethics is probably the only type mm -hmm. of legislation that you see that. So I just, it was yeah. funny that we had the same experience. <laughs> but House Bill 23 was, an issue, was a, a bill that we started working on um, in the interim. Uh, and it deals, it kind of dovetails with GEO's bill because it, does, it deals with um, the procurement process and the local government. So your city council, cities and, and um, county commissioners and any type of local government. Uh, there's really, uh, the, the conflicts of interest law is almost, I mean, it's horrible. Tell me what you discovered and, in that process because you were telling me about how, what, what you discovered was totally legal to do. Well, so first of all, if you are, um, uh, if you are a member of a local government, let's say you're on city council and you um, are making a procurement decision and you have a vendor who is your brother, you don't have to disclose that because you don't have to disclose family relationships under the government code, only business relationships. So if you had a, if you owned part of that, that business that you were, or that vendor, then you'd have to disclose that, but no family relationships. So I thought that was, um, that was, to me, the most glaring thing. And there was not really good definitions of what a gift is. And um, you didn't have to disclose uh, travel and entertainment. And also, in examining the law, and, and I was working with um, some members of the House, but also a former TEC commissioner, Ross Fisher, who actually was the one that um, kind of brought this um, these deficiencies to my attention. And um, so, it was it was just it was pretty overwhelming that we were going to be spending I don't know, what was it three billion dollars for water and all of these infrastructure projects that were going to go down to the state or from the state to our our local levels and there's just the the conflicts of interest law is just not there. So now the the brothers and the sisters and the 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 uh, those types of relationships and the travel that's all been taken care that, of. That that yes that has to be disclosed um, so at least you know, you will know. I think probably the media may cover some scandals really locally, you know, if you've got a brother who's, um, who owns a business who's getting a sweetheart deal with the city, but, you know, I don't know if those get as covered statewide, and so um, I, that's why I, it, was a, it was a new issue for me to examine. If I can keep it on optimistic note, these two bills, and, and some of the things that we did during the session, a lot of other states aren't even close to. We know because uh, they were presented to Alec and other places. We said, wow, how did you guys get that done? So I will say, although we didn't hit the high bar that everybody wanted us to, in some levels, we, we are leading in other states when it comes to transparency and, and disclosure. I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to go to uh, questions from the audience. So these two bills are, are local government, although yours also affects state government. Yeah. Um, but what, what solutions are you, are you looking for maybe next session that you think needs to be done to ethics reform? Uh, what, what, what idea would you like to pursue? Are you going to keep doing the whining and dining, or what are you going to go for? Well, I, I am going to do that. But what I'm hopeful for, go back to where I st we started this conversation, when I said that one of the reasons I didn't think it was a better session in that, in, in, with regard to ethics was because there wasn't clear focus. What I'm hoping is that the failure of this session to do something 
these are great bills, by the way, but to do something bigger than what we all thought we were going to be doing, that that will create during this interim more opportunity for focus and the debate and discussion that I was complaining we didn't get in that 140 days. Actually, it was less than 140 days because of when the emergency declaration came and all of that. So that, that when we get to the next session, some of the bigger, better ideas that died. And I think, I, I think the representative is right. I think part of it will be, it'll need to be single shot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you can do it single shot, we may be able to get more out of that. I mean, the, the, the amendments on 19 on the, SB 19 on the floor, I mean, it was great political theater, but it ought to be in a, a funny political novel. Well, there was the one, the drug testing and yeah, yeah, some, yeah. some of those <laughs> issues in there. Um, and of course, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has added That's right. ethics to the interim So hope I thought was a very interesting move. I think, I think it was a very interesting yeah. move. Now let us hope that the committee charged with those charges actually meets and brings them up early and often so that we can have a meaningful interim discussing it and not wait to the last minute and, uh, well, we just can't get anything done. Sarah, you got a big idea for next session? Well, I'm, I'm still stinging from the, <laughs> from the vetoes, um, so I'm not going to make uh, any commitments. But I think when we talk about ethics and an interesting subject that I think we should probably explore, not only is, is disclosure an issue, but I find it interesting how some uh, politicians really develop a lifestyle based on their campaign accounts and their spending. You know, what we spend our campaign cash on, I think, is something would be, uh, we should look at that because it's very wishy-washy. Um, you know, you just, it can't be for personal reasons, but I see these campaign finance reports and people are spending campaign money on apartments and car leases and furniture and food and, and that doesn't smell right to me, even though I know it's legal. Um, it just doesn't feel right. I don't think we want to have politicians whose lifestyle is dependent upon them being in office and running for office. And so I think sometimes, you know, that can intersect with, with disclosure too. But I think that's, that would be an interesting issue to focus on. Geo, you got a, an idea. Of course, I would be the most hated yeah. member of the legislature. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you would. Um, you know, when I first ran in 2010, I told the Texas Tribune and Amon what the first bill I would file was, and it was effectively 1295. And so now I wish I had said what the second bill was, so I would be able to do Well, now that. you can say it now. So I can say it now. Um, well, I was looking, and I, you know, on SB 19 on both sides, when we had that conversation, I think a lot of the members had really good amendments, some not so good amendments, but some had some good amendments. Uh, everything from, you know, pension, finding out more transparency in some of the pensions, I, I had tried to do that my my first session as well, but you know, are people double dipping, triple dipping? Are uh, how much money, uh, how underwater some of these things are? I think is important. Putting the personal financial disclosures online, it just seems moving to me, out of the 1970s. Yeah, that seems to me obvious. So n nothing absolutely new or out of the box, but there's some things that we should have passed before. I will say this: if we're going to continue to put requirements on the Texas Ethics Commission, right, to continue to increase the things that they need to do, and, and we've got to give them the tools and the resources yeah, to do it. Absolutely. So, we, it's so easy when we write a bill and we say, oh, you know, there's no fiscal note, the Texas Ethics Commission can just do it. Mm -hmm. But let's be clear that we're, we're going to continue to push uh, responsibilities on the TEC. We need to properly fund them. Sir, you have a question? Oh, go ahead, Paul. Thanks, Jay. Um, <clears throat> Two-part question. Uh, how far do y'all see uh, going with the uh, familiar uh, family uh, aspect in terms of, uh, you know, kids, cousins, et cetera? And then uh, second part, this being a, a citizen legislature, it's a lot of times that y'all are writing bills or uh, passing laws that directly uh, influence the industry that you work in or maybe even something, not necessarily that you have a contract for, but that directly uh, uh, affects your business. So how does that, uh, how do you balance that citizen legislator versus uh, looking out for yourself overstepping those bounds? Well, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna address the last, the second question first, and that is that we have rules that prohibit us from voting on legislation that will, that we have a 
something to gain from, basically. So we, we monitor ourselves. We, have, we, can be, we recuse ourselves from voting, white lie to vote. Um, I'm not trying to say that, that everyone does that all the time, but I, I don't know, you know, I don't know how you create a threshold. Um, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so theoretically anything that changes the, you know, anything that coming out of the, the jurisprudence committee could have an effect on me. So, you, I mean, we, I, I mean, we, I think we do a fairly good job at monitoring ourselves and making sure. And luckily, we have the media uh, who uh, who do stories whenever certain uh, members are are making votes in which they have um, direct financial uh, benefit from. What the law says is that she she's, she said it right, but it, what it is is it you can take a vote on something that impacts the entire industry generally but it cannot have an impact on something specific in which you have uh, a significant interest. Um, and and that's, that's the, the way the law is. So you will see, in some instances, uh, members ask questions of, of even people testifying. Now this impacts the entire industry, is that correct? This would not be something that would create a benefit for any specific. And the reason for doing that is to provide the, the, the fact basis for making that vote. With regard to the over to the familial aspects of that, that's one of those things that I'm, I'm complaining we don't have enough of a debate on. You know, she, what you just heard her say is she found uh, some very interesting issues related to how, how there ought to be some disclosure on those for that bill. I don't think we've had enough of a discussion about that. Sir? Uh, and obviously, in full disclosure, I am a lobbyist. Uh, my mother was so proud. Um, I'd be a politician. You know. But I, I wanted to say thank you to, to Senator Watson for acknowledging the fact that there were lobbyists that came to you uh, who are very committed to the highest ethical standards that you can apply to us. And I would almost venture to say that the, the majority of lobbyists uh, in Austin would support uh, higher ethical standards and full disclosure. Uh, so I appreciate that. But I would ask the question, and I, I think Joe just touched on it briefly, but uh, you can look up online, you know, everything to do with me from my lobby registration to every penny that I spend to all of my clients and even what they pay, pay me. Uh, everything that we do is accessible online and you can research me uh, completely. The financial disclosure forms that legislators have to fill out for some reason have never been electronically available. And it, will that continue to be? or Because I know that's been a hard bill to pass. Th that bill has been a hard bill to pass. And, and in fact, when it came up in the Senate, um, <laughs> Senator Joan Huffman complained that, you know, if you put stuff out there like that, people could, could get harassed. Um, but I'd like to ask you guys if y'all would have a problem with, with having personal financials. They're already online at the Texas Tribune right. I mean, site, by the way. But, and that's a good point. I mean, which is actually, it's good for us. I mean, sure. you know, so that. No, but you're right. I mean, it's already online. It's already out there. So anybody can do an open records request and put them online. Um, I don't necessarily buy the privacy part of it because I've given that up a long time ago. You can find out just as much as you can about anybody else, if not more. So, and if for nothing else, I don't want another piece of paper that I have to put in my filing cabinet so I can remember, you know, where I put it and, and, and log it all. I'd like to have it up online. Yeah, I completely support having our personal financial statements available online. And one of the bills that got vetoed was a bill that essentially got rid of the requirement that the personal financial statements be notarized so that they can be filed electronically and be available yeah. online. I mean, it was. So. I've never understood the privacy argument either. I, heard, I sat there on the floor and listened to it said over and over and over again. But, but I'm, I'm kind of like a representative here. I think anybody in this room wants to know where I live. They probably could be at my house before I get there. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, worried about, I'm not worried about that. Sir? That's not an invitation, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> love you all. Love you, particularly if you live in SD. Party at Burke's house. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> What are you serving for? Well, I have a question about the transparency of the legislature. In the House, the Calendars Committee, uh, their proceedings and tagging bills are second in secrecy, probably only to the election of the Pope. 
and it seems that it would be useful information to the public to know who is killing bills and perhaps why, uh, particularly when three or four people can rotate tagging a bill and effectively keep it bottled up for that session without ever attracting attention to themselves. You want to take that one? Aren't you on the calendars committee? I yeah. am. Um, I appreciate your perspective. Uh, and, you know, I just will say that really the system, I think the whole legislative process is designed to kill legislation more than, it's supposed to make it very hard to pass bills. And we like it that way in Texas. We like limited government. I mean, it's a conservative um, dominated body. And I, I think, I, I understand that, you know, you well, feel. I will make one observation. Yes, uh, our 1876 constitution, which technically is a post-reconstruction document, might better be described as an anti-reconstruction document. And yes, it is designed to make doing things very difficult. Thank you. Of course, uh, some of the grizzled old veterans remember when the calendars committee used to like meet in somebody's apartment and um, was not uh, disclosed. And so I, I'm sure it's gotten better. But it is, if anybody's ever been into a calendars committee meeting, it's, it, it can be very Every calendar. It, it seems like an auction or something. It's just the strange are, the way are, they have are, it. The committees are posted. They're open to the public. There's, we don't meet. Um, without proper, I mean, there's never going to be a, a, like a, a calendars committee meeting that hasn't been properly posted. I think if we, if we fix that, there would probably be some other new killing room somewhere. But anyway, yeah, ma'am. Um, what are a few things that we as constituents can do to help Senator Watson get whining and dining legislation passed? Good question. Yeah. What, what can average people do, Senator? Keep voting for Senator Watson. <laughs> 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 and really, I don't have much ideas that pass that. But uh, <laughs> what I would ask is that that we passed it out of the Senate. I'm not sure why it was. I, the truth of the matter is, I I think it came. Here's what I really think happened in the House, and I'm speculating here. I think it came down to one or two lobbyists that were able to kill that in the House. The key would be able to get, in, in both bodies, get constituents saying they want that information so that in both bodies it'll, it'll make it through hearings in the committees, show up and testify at those committee hearings, or at least drop a card um, so that people will know, and then get it to the floor. It's got to get to the floor. Once it gets to the floor, there's no way you can vote against it. Um, but there's a lot of, as, as we've been talking about, there's a lot of different ways to kill it. It was dead, dead, dead in the Senate because of no hearing. But once some light got shined on it, now all of a sudden there was nothing you could do. And, and so it's just a question of helping the members get it to the floor because they're going to have to overcome some lobbyist. And I, and I really do think that's what happened. I think, and I think I even know which lobbyist I blame. You want so, to, it, to it, share? It no. doesn't matter really what the issue is, whether it's ethics reform, what, whatever the issue, the most important thing you can do as a citizen is to contact your representatives, yeah. you know, and have ask for a meeting or even just send an email. I mean, we, I know, I don't want to say we, we, any email that I receive is, you know, it goes into a constituent management software system so I can see before I take any vote I can run we get a report to see how many constituents contacted us who is for who's against in the interim is a great time because we'll meet with you um, we're, you know we're working we have jobs but during the session it's hard to get more than 30 seconds with a legislator because we just work so much so I would just encourage you no matter what the issue is just make just meet with your state rep and your and your um, state senator and let them know and I will say we look at well, I look at your voting record before the meeting, so if you're not a voter, I know that when you walk into my office. Um, and so, wow. talk about your disclosure! Wow. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm. Checking, but, that, but that's she's important. The I am. Out, huh? But but I would think a lot of members do. Yeah, I do. So, make sure you have voted before you go into that meeting. Yeah, you get treated a lot better, huh? <laughs> sir. I got diet cokes for voters. No, <laughs> We only have water. 
Speaking of testifying at committee hearings, has there been any update that you all have heard of after the uh, Pickett-Stickland controversy and if, there, if people are still going to be allowed to drop cards or if that's going away or anything like that? So I, I, um, I serve on the General Investigating and Ethics Committee that handled that. Can, um, you, can you explain what happened? Uh, yeah, so uh, <laughs> there was an altercation. Can you, can you explain what happened? <laughs> Tell us what happened. So there was an altercation between uh, Chairman Pickett and Representative Stickland over a bill, I believe, that would, his, he had a bill that would ban red light cameras. And somehow their uh, Chairman Pickett noticed there was a large number of people that had registered to sign up to testify on the bill. And there was some suspicion that those people were not actually in the Capitol. So in order to test up, in order to, um, to register for, on, or against a bill, you have to physically be in the Capitol. So uh, Chairman Pickett, I think, made some phone calls to some of the witnesses because they, they had the, um, the form has the phone number. And they, in fact, at least one I know, said, no, I'm not in the building. And so then uh, Chairman Pickett got concerned that that was inappropriate um, behavior and asked Representative Stickland nicely to leave the committee room. So there was an altercation, and then the whole thing got turned over to our committee. We turned it all over to, um, to the Texas Rangers to investigate. The Rangers spent, one Ranger spent an ent the entire summer contacting all 86. I think I was, if I remember the number, I might be incorrect, but I think there was 86 witnesses that uh, signed up to testify for Jonathan Stickland's bill, Con made contact with all, all but 10 of them, uh, confirmed that a little more than 50 of them were in fact, they said they were in the Capitol. The remainder 20 some odd folks said they were not actually present in the Capitol, but they were opposed, I mean they did support Jonathan's bill. Um, and the other 10, that there was 10 that they could not reach, and those were actually Representative Stickland's staff members and their families. So there were 10 that refused, and they were hired. They, had, um, they were retained lawyers, so the Rangers, of course, didn't you know, overstep their bounds there. But the Rangers came back and said that there had been no laws broken because all of the folks, the information was true and correct. So when you go and you testify at a hearing, you, 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 you swear that all the information on the form that you're filling out is true and correct. And since all 86 of those people confirmed their identity and their position was correct, that they were supportive of Representative Stickland's bill, there had been no, there was nothing to prosecute from uh, the criminal side. So there's that, that's the end of it. There's, no, there's nothing to prosecute. The House um, determined that we don't specifically have a, a very specific rule that says you must be present. So uh, there probably was not any House rules broken per se. And the result will be a, um, I think House administration is going to be developing a class that we're going to require all Capitol uh, staffers to take that will teach them about uh, the rules of, of the House. That's a great update. Yeah, thank you. You have a career in journalism, maybe. <laughs> Uh, well, that's all we have time for. Um, I think it was a great discussion. Thanks, everyone. Thank Let's you, give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.